Good evening, Clarice. I thought you might like your podcast back, Doctor. Just until you get your view. How very thoughtful. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Downplaying co-ops. Now playing podcasts in the movie review show. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You were telling me about this podcast back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've gone to their website now, playingpodcast.com. Have you? Everything you need to know is there in those pages. Then tell me how. First, principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob. What is their nature? What do they do, these podcast hosts you seek? They review movies. No, that is incidental. They watch all movies in the Hannibal Lecter series from 1986's Manhunter through the prequel Hannibal Rising. They review one movie each week. That is their nature. And how do they do these reviews, Clarice? Make an effort to answer now. They just... No. They review with in-depth analysis, including detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't you hear the coming spoilers, Clarice? All right, yes. Now please tell me how. No. It is time to listen to the show, Clarice. Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. No. I will listen now. Today we're discussing Hannibal, starring Anthony Hopkins, Julian Moore, Gary Oldman, Ray Liotta, and directed by Ridley Scott. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. From that lineup and director, this should be a good movie, right? I was highly excited. There's so much about this to be jumping up and down for, right? Well, unless you read the book. (laughs) But the anticipation for this movie had to be as high as I've had for any movie probably since Alien 3. Well, Silence of the Lambs is huge. One best picture, all that. Why did it take 10 years then? Well, if it had been left up to Dino De Laurentiis, you would have had it next week. Because the man cranks him out. And, you know, quality control is not always his best asset. But he knew that everyone was waiting for the book. The Thomas Harris story. And that's what he had the rights to. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the book. I know it's unavoidable. Oh, I got questions for you, Stuart. (laughs) You'll want to know some of the things, but I will remind our listeners over at Books and Nachos, I'm covering the book. I read all 500-something pages of it, and my thoughts about the source material for Hannibal is over there. Here, I'm really trying to stick to the movie and to look at it as an adapted work. But, yeah, I'll say this much. It's an imperfect novel. And I feel like, yes, when people finally got a hold of it in 1999, it was already sort of a crushing blow. You know, like all the main people didn't want to be involved. All of a sudden, Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster, the screenwriter Ted Talley, all the people that won awards were walking away and saying, eh, not so much. 
I had a bad feeling about this going in. And, you know, all the people who say they don't want to be involved, Jodie Foster's gone on record and said she thought it was a betrayal of her character. But according to Dino De Laurentiis, if you believe him, he talked to Jodie's agent who said Jodie's on board 15 million plus 10 percent. And he said, tell Miss Judy Foster to have a good day. <laughs> I'm sure that that's how he would like to write the story. That's right. He told Jody, we don't want you. I think he would have been willing to pay all of that and more to get the award-winning team that got the Oscar and got the acclaim back for this. I honestly believe people when they say they weren't interested in doing this novel. And I can understand the hesitation. It's just nothing like it. Before we even talk about whether we like it or quality or anything, it's nothing like Silence of the Lambs. It's completely works within a world and a logic and a whole universe that has nothing to do with what came before, right? I mean, I feel like Silence of the Lambs was the epitome of factual, believable police procedural storytelling. And here, there are so many whimsical, never-could-happen, perverted, fantasia, arias of violence. I mean, it just takes a different sensibility. And it isn't Jody's story anymore, so of course she's going to pass. And it isn't Silence of the Lambs' mood, so of course Demi's not interested. And you know, it's a huge novel and a huge undertaking, and Tally can only unfavorably be compared with his script for Silence of the Lambs, so of course he's going to pass. But I think it's key, and I think we can all agree, that it would have been no movie if Anthony Hopkins had passed, too. Queen of the Damned comes to mind. What's Lestat <laughs> when you remove Tom Cruise? <laughs> Having read the book, I have a perspective now that I actually think it could have worked. One of the big details of the book that makes sense, one of the few ones I'll add, is the fact that Lecter has plastic surgery and reconstructs his face to look different. You don't hire Anthony Hopkins and then put his face under a bunch of latex. So they had to just scrap that detail. But for this story to work plausibly, it needs to not look like Anthony Hopkins. But the bite of it is, in order for us to want to see it, we want to see Anthony Hopkins with his unblinking eyes and his pursed lips. I mean, what would this story be if it had been Tim Roth, which is who they were going to go with if Anthony Hopkins said no? I'm watching this. I'm like, well, maybe the book was really good, though. Usually the book is better than the movie. But now that I'm hearing what you're saying, not even getting into the plot yet, I got an idea who's to blame for this. Well, why don't we get into that plot and Stuart start us off with a summary. Sounds good. Hannibal Lecter has been giving the world the silent treatment for the past decade, living abroad under a false identity and only indulging in murder if it lands him a job curating art in Florence, Italy. But when FBI agent Clarice Starling is attacked by the media for a failed Washington, D.C. drug raid, Lecter drafts handwritten condolences announcing his intentions to, quote, come out of retirement and return to public life. The message is perfumed in a contraband whale excretion only available in a few international beauty shops. Lecter's hoping his former pupil will covet this clue and hunt him down so that they can at last reunite in the outside world. But Clarice is not the only one tailing the AWOL cannibal. Mason Verger, a child molester whose vast wealth has allowed him to not only stay out of prison, but influence Washington politicians, has been nursing a grudge ever since Lecter exploited his intoxicated state in a therapy session decades prior and goaded him to cut off his own face and feed it to dogs. The wheelchair-bound victim plans to return the favor by capturing his former Baltimore shrink and serving him to a pen full of pigs that Verger has raised to eat human flesh. The rich man promises a $3 million reward to anyone who can provide clues to Hannibal's whereabouts. 
Clarice confirms that Lecter is hiding out in Florence after spotting him on perfume counter security camera footage, but Italian police inspector Ronaldo Pazzi is one step ahead of her. He's had an eye on Lecter, now going by the name Dr. Fell, ever since he started investigating the disappearance of the man Fell replaced at the Capone Library. Pazzi uses a pickpocket to obtain Dr. Fell's fingerprints and sends them on to Verger, who confirms they are indeed a match for Hannibal. The Italian cop wants to collect his $3 million reward rather than aid Clarice and the feds, so he plots a sting with Verger's henchmen to nab Lecter after he finishes a lecture on Dante. Agent Starling figures out Pazzi's scheme and calls his cell phone to warn him how dangerous and slippery Hannibal can be, but by this time the crooked cop has already been kidnapped by Lecter, who proceeds to gut him and publicly display his corpse in typically theatrical fashion. Verger believes his only hope in capturing Hannibal now is to put Clarice in distress, so he pays Starling's sexist boss Paul Crindler to plant falsified Lecter love letters that get her suspended from the force. Lecter returns to the States to spy on Clarice, but is captured by his former patient at a crowded train station. Verger dresses his prisoner in the famous faceplate and plants him crucified in the pig pen. Clarice arrives packing heat just before the hogs make dinner out of Lecter's feet. She takes out a few of the henchmen before sustaining a critical bullet injury. Lecter coaxes Mason's private physician Cordell to feed the better pedophile to the pigs and let him and Clarice go free. But Clarice awakens in a drug state to find that Lecter has planned a candlelit dinner date at Paul Crindler's lake house, where her mean boss has now been lobotomized and providing brain matter for their entree. Starling rejects Lecter's perverted offerings of love and handcuffs him with her to the refrigerator. With FBI choppers rapidly approaching, Lecter has no choice but take a meat cleaver to his arm and graphically sever ties with his longtime crush. The movie ends with a one-handed Lecter somehow evading pre-9-11 airport security to take an international flight to an uncertain destination, turning a new generation on to cannibalism as credits roll. Hey, one second. It's post 9-11. No, it's not. Really? Because they show Bin Laden is the most wanted. I know, but he was. He was anyway. Wow. Okay. This came out February 2001. Oh, did it really? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Okay. I thought they were totally exploiting that. No. No, I'll cross off all those notes. <laughs> you know, it is weird. You're right. I got to say, as much as I thought he was a badass, I never really thought of him as a mass murderer on that level. Was that a weird thing for you guys? Osama and Hannibal together? Yeah, I saw this in theaters and I heard of Osama because he was going to blow us up on Y2K, but I didn't really think anything of it. Now seeing it, you know how they kind of removed the Twin Towers from buildings around after 9-11 because they thought it would be in bad taste or pull people out of the movies to see it? I'm kind of wondering if they should digitally remove Osama there because now it seems like a bad joke. <laughs> There's no way that we cannot think of 9-11 when we look at it, even though this is a period film. It's not even happening the year of its release. But yeah, just a weird thing to juxtapose our killer with a real killer. Now... Stuart, you said this is totally different than the others, but in so many ways, I see once again the Thomas Harris pattern coming through, right? Where you have your really deranged villain, in this case, Verger, or in the last one, Buffalo Bill and Tooth Fairy before that. And then you have your FBI profiler and you have Hannibal. Now, in this one, Hannibal's a little bit more directly involved than in the last two, but it's still that same 
Triangle of Death? It's a trifecta, and I, I do think he likes trinities. He certainly likes religious imagery. But I want to remind you, there's also a fourth investigator here. There's Potsy, and I think he really brings something different to the mix that, well, it's no longer a triangle anymore. It's no longer about three people pursuing each other. He sort of throws a wrench into that. But I hear what you're saying, that I think that Thomas Harris did try to follow a formula that he has been crafting ever since Red Dragon, and he was trying to use that formula to guide him into figuring out what he was going to do with Clarice. They call it Hannibal, but really the wild card for me, the real puzzler, the real question I have for you right now, I guess before we get into anything, is would you have been okay with a Lecter story without Clarice? This is the first time that the investigator has made a return to the storyline. I was actually surprised that they went back to her. I thought that, oh, is this all about Hannibal? So I was shocked that they did bring her back. I don't think it was necessary. And now having seen this film, I really don't like what they did with her. So I wish it would have been more about Hannibal. I disagree. I think that the way it was set up in Silence of the Lambs, Clarice caught his fancy. And when Silence of the Lambs ended in credit rolls, what I wanted was to see Clarice trying to bring down Hannibal the way she tried to bring down Buffalo Bill. And I think that's what the world wanted. Ding, 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 ding. You're absolutely right. And you're on to a key distinction that I'll talk more about at Books and Nachos. If Thomas Harris had finished writing Hannibal before Silence of the Lambs, the movie, had come out, I agree. That changed everything. We could have had a story that didn't involve Clarice, but once it was Jodie Foster and we realized that the driving force of that movie was their unconsummated relationship, there was no way that we would accept any other story for Lecter but a Clarice story. But that's the movie. That's not the book. And I would argue Hannibal in Europe seems to be the story that they want to tell, at least at first, and that Clarice really has to struggle to find a purpose for much of this movie because it's just not her journey anymore. This movie goes into typical sequel territory, especially with Clarice. You know, I'm thinking Ghostbusters 2. Where do the Ghostbusters begin at in the beginning of that film? They're bankrupt. They're seen as villains. And that's what quickly happens to Clarice here. She rose to the top in the first film. And so, of course, the beginning of this film, you got to bring them as low as possible so they could have that hero's journey back up to this top again. It just seems like a very typical place they go with her. I agree. The scene where she's relieved of her badge and gun, that's a crazy worthy scene, isn't it, anymore? It's just been done so many freaking times. Uh, well, I think it's cringe-worthy because they haven't earned it. Particularly in the movie, there's no real reason to reprimand her. It's really the media that blows out of the proportion. It's the fact that we see an image of a woman shooting a mother with a baby in her arms. That's what people see, and so people make judgments about it. But anyone that understands the situation, no one would blame Starling. I mean, she's not in the wrong here. Let's just take a step back and talk about this scene for a second, because there's things in this film that, like, make sense from a high point view. But when you start getting into the details, that's when this film starts getting crazy. And this is one of those moments, you know, OK, to have Starling lose her badge, have this downfall. OK, that makes sense. But the way they go about it in this film, like there's this drug raid they're doing and they have to be really careful because the head gang leader is this female with AIDS, do they say? So they have to be yes. careful that she doesn't spit blood in their face. Which is not really a viable way to contract AIDS. It's a bizarre monstrosity of someone afflicted with HIV. It's kind of absurd. And she has needles with HIV in her hair. So if you grab yes. her head... 
the whole way this is done and you got this weird monstrosity of a gang leader with babies strapped to him and needles in her hair. Like, I feel we're in Predator 2 territory here with this weird <laughs> drug raid. Like, King Willie could be her supplier. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm sorry. I, this is not what I'm expecting from a Silence of the Lambs series. To be perfectly honest, I had a lot of trouble following exactly what was going on there, but it doesn't matter. All that has to happen is they have to set up a situation to put Clarice's career in a bad spot. None of this matters. Even though she didn't do anything wrong, it was another cop. And everyone, all the other FBI witnessed that. Here is our first introduction to our new Clarice, Julianne Moore. Now, Arnie. Someone who advocated <laughs> that Jodie Foster involvement could have been anyone. I gotta ask, how did Julianne Moore do? Julianne Moore's southern accent is slightly worse than Jodie Foster's. Slightly? slightly? No, no. It was like nails on a chalkboard every time she spoke in this film. What are you saying slightly worse? And the thing is, I looked up, I'm like, where's she from? You know, why does she have such a bad... She's from North Carolina, which is basically the South. Like, you'd think she'd be able to pull this off better. It's the worst accent I've heard. I don't think the accent's that bad, guys. Oh, it's awful. It grated on me, this whole film. I was glad every time she wasn't in the movie. Well, she wasn't in much. But that's the thing that I have to say is it's almost impossible for me to judge how Julianne Moore would be in Silence of the Lambs based on this because, man, it's not the same actress, but is it even the same character? And what they do to her, they have this shootout at the beginning. And she spends the next, what, 90 minutes of the movie in a basement listening to tapes? I know. Here's the thing, and here's what I'm really struggling with, and I'm going to credit Jodie Foster on this, is even though Jodie was working in an environment where she was constantly being harassed, I never saw her as a victim. I never thought, Clary Starling, boy, she just has got it so bad. She saw the men looking at her. She saw her being downgraded by her boss, Crawford, everyone. She kept her chin up, and she got the job done, and she caught the guy where all the men failed. She took what was considered a weakness and made it a positive and succeeded on that. Here, this Clary Starling, all she does is mope. I swear to God, all she does is jog and mope, right? That's her whole thing. And, and you're right, sit in basements and listen to tapes. It's a very dull, reactionary, self-pitying performance. It's not the same character at all. I have to think that maybe Julianne Moore was a little bit intimidated by the shoes she was stepping into. Because the opening scene, she gets better for me in the movie. But that opening scene, she reads her lines like a corpse. When she's trying to lay it down and be tough and tell the cops who's in charge. Jodie Foster did have a sense of toughness to her that I believed more than Julianne Moore. Yeah. But Julianne Moore looks better in the dress at the end. I'll agree with you there, Arnie. <laughs> well, you know who I'm going to blame on this? And I hate doing it. I hate doing it. But I'm not blaming Moore at all. I'm blaming Ridley Scott. Okay, I, I got a lot of issues with Scott in this film, but we'll, we'll get into that. I but really do, too. And I'm with you, too. I'm highly esteemed of Ridley Scott's early career, but it's not that he's incapable of making a bad movie. But here's the thing. I never thought of him as making an ugly movie. But right from the get-go, you talk about the shootout. I don't even think this is well made. I mean, I don't even think that it's staged in a way that's exciting, that brings us in. Forget whether the performance is exciting. Forget whether this is cartoonish villains or not. Do you even get your pulse quickening? I mean, it's just a bunch of soda cans that get shot up, right? I mean, I feel like Scott does nothing to bring us into this movie, into this world. It's a very poor directing job. Well, again, I wasn't on Blade Runner, but I am a fan of Scott's, love Blade Runner, one of my all-time favorite films. 
Gladiator I liked, but there was something I didn't like about Gladiator, and that was like the missing frame choppy action scenes, like when Russell's fighting the lion and all that, it went into this really, like, almost strobe-like effect. Oh, yeah. He plays with the camera shutter. It's so obnoxious. He did it in Black Hawk Down. It's kind of a later hallmark of his later movies. They all seem to have it. You're right. It's so annoying. I hate it. And when I saw it in Hannibal in theaters, I was like, this sucks. It takes me out of the action. It makes it less exciting. So, yes, in this opening shootout, any excitement I could feel, I'm completely taken out of by the just, yeah, annoying way it's filmed. Yeah. He goes into this slow motion scene in the shootout, and then you have weird violin. Like, I know there's opera later on in this movie. I don't know if he's trying to portray this as an entire opera or what's, like, there's so many weird decisions in this film. Well, Jacob, I am just going to defend the music in just one way. Thomas Harris had this scene staged to the Macarena. (laughs) No! So, clearly, anything was better than that. I don't know. At least the Macarena. Come on. No, no. (laughs) There would have been a disconnected sense of irony there, at least. No. The Macarena would have been the worst way to stage this scene. I'm going to do a fan edit of this scene to the Macarena now. (laughs) I wonder if someone has done that on YouTube. I'll have to go search for it later. But, Stuart, your defense can't be, well, it could have been worse. (laughs) It could have been the Macarena is my defense, and I win. (laughs) Hey, they're in a Latin area. You'd think the Spanglish music would be popular. Yeah. But to your point, I agree. The music choices, the way that this is being photographed, the ugliness of it all, the flat performances. It's very clear that we are no longer in the hands of Jonathan Demme. But here's the weird thing. I always thought of Michael Mann being sort of a disciple of Ridley Scott, being influenced by his style and the arty quality and the slowness in the compositions. I would have thought that we would be returning to the stylization of Manhunter. I really thought that that's what Hannibal would look and feel like with Ridley Scott at the helm. But this is just a junky TV show. This is the least interesting, least well-directed movie. Forget the writing, forget the performances. This is the least well-made movie of the three that we've watched. And we're introduced during these defrocking scenes to the guy who I think is this movie's Chilton, FBI agent Paul Crundler, played by ever-greasy Ray Liotta. (laughs) Never been a likable presence, right, Ray? Even in Goodfellas, when he was the hero, he was like a bad guy. I mean, I feel like Ray Liotta lives to ooze sleaze, and always charming. There's always a wink, and I mean, in many ways, he's Lecter-esque in the way that you like him even though you don't want to, but he's always a thug. He's always a heavy. He's always a guy you wouldn't want to know in real life. I was kind of missing Clarice's old boss. I knew we weren't getting Jody back, but I wondered if Crawford would be returning. He passed like everyone else. (laughs) Scott Glenn, (laughs) even Scott Glenn went, I ain't doing this shit. He's in the book. Crawford is a character in the book. He's not dead. But in the movie, they recorded some voiceover. Lecter, when he writes his note, he actually says, I'm sorry to hear about Crawford dying. And they didn't end up using that take. But yeah, they wrote him out of the movie entirely. But he's in the book. That's too bad. I liked Crawford. Arnie, I was with you there. I was waiting for him to show up. Yeah, because you'd think he would perhaps have protected Starling from Krendler. I just want to remind you guys, Krendler was in the last movie. You may not have noticed, but when the case is taken away from Crawford, when the whole thing blows up and he and Jody are person non grato in the case, the guy that takes over, that's Krendler, played by Ron Volter. Oh, didn't realize that. Well, 
Clarice is called upon by Verger. Mason Verger. Gary Oldman. Really? I did not know that was Gary Oldman. I guess I didn't pay attention to the credits. He's not in the credits. Oh, okay. They wanted it to be a sort of a surprise. They wanted to keep that identity kind of secret. And that was just one of those kind of poorly kept secrets they had. I mean, I think anyone that wanted to know knew that Gary Oldman was in it. But I don't think he did a lot of press and his name's not in the titles. I read this very funny anecdote that when Gary Oldman was in talks, he's like, okay, but I want to be up there on the poster with Julian and Anthony. And they're like, well, this is kind of the Lecter Clarice story. We can't really do that. And so he said, no, I don't want the job. Then came back the next day. I'll do it, but only if I'm uncredited. No one can know it's me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that about Gary Oldman. What a real eccentric, really follows his own drummer. I'm going to say maybe some unkind things about Hannibal in general, not a one of them about Gary Ullman or Mason Verger. I love this character, and I love this character as much as I've loved anything out of Red Dragon or Silence of the Lambs. I think this creation is fantastic. And they had me, the second that the movie opens on his face collecting the memorabilia, I was hooked. And I could ignore all of this other crap we've been talking about that isn't working because I was hooked by Verger. Okay, I like the idea that there's this weird eBay-esque auctioning going on for Hannibal's belongings. Like, that strikes a real chord, like people's real obsession with prisoners and serial killers, and I thought that was cool. But again, here's this kernel of an idea that looks really good from this 10,000-foot view. You know, okay, one of Hannibal's ex-victims, the one that lived, wanting to get revenge. And then when we start getting into these details, this disfigured child molester that's so rich he controls senators and he's going to feed Hannibal to pigs and he has his own private mercenary. Like, this is where things just start going awry. Like, every time they, they get this cool idea, but then the details just splatter. They're all over the place. Like Love the pigs. I'm right there with you, Jacob. This is an idea that should work, but every single thing about this character goes wrong for me, and I like nothing about him. The fact that you like him, Stuart, makes me think that there's something in the book that's not on screen, because... No, you're wrong. No, I like this character from the first time I saw the movie ten years ago. I love what Oldman's doing with this. I love his voice. I love the makeup job on him. It's truly one of the best makeup jobs I've ever seen. I thought it looked so plasticky. I thought it did not look real. I don't know if you would know if they looked real, Arnie. You know, how did did someone disfigured look real? I can tell latex a mile away. All right. Well, I think this is an incredible creation. I think he looks both tragic and scary. And that's the balance you want. That's the balance that they've had. Red Dragon was tragic, but he was fucking scary. And Buffalo Bill was really, really scary. But every now and then he would open up and you would see that intimacy of him trying to be a woman, trying to be feminine. And this continues that. You know, I really feel like he is classically in that mold and he is the one thing in all of Hannibal that I just love through and through. Sure, I'm going to agree with you that I like Oldman's delivery. I like the look. But to me, it was cartoony. It just came off so comical. Tooth Fairy and Buffalo Bill, they seem grounded. That seems weird to say that these serial killers seem grounded in reality, but they did. This guy... It's just such a comical take. I enjoy Oldman's delivery of the lines. I like that. But I don't feel that this is the same universe as Silence of the Lambs or even Manhunter. You're not wrong about that, Jacob. The first two killers were based on real killers. One was the BTK killer and the other was an amalgam of killers, including Gein and Bundy. 
what's Verger based off of other than a Freddy Krueger wannabe? Yeah, I think you're right. This is something coming out of Thomas Harris's imagination. And you're right. He doesn't feel real. Nothing much about this movie feels real, but I'm buying into him in this universe, in the world that's been set up here. He's the thing I'm gravitating to. And I, I mean this. I really love him. I really think that he is everything that I want this movie to be doing. And I think it's ironic in a movie where it's all about Clarice and Hannibal, the character I want the most is one that's never been introduced before. Now, he opens up a huge plot hole for me that just I cannot explain away, and maybe one of you can. So Hannibal and he, Hannibal pretends to be gay, so the two of them go out carousing. And Hannibal gets him to reveal that he's a child molester and talk about, oh, how do you lure the children? Because Hannibal, despite being a cannibal, he's kind of like the Punisher, right? He only kills the people (laughs) who are bad. He only eats the evil. Or play the flute bad, as they point out in this film. True. (laughs) That's where they're leading to him now. I don't know that that's always been the case. That wasn't true, I don't think, in the first book. But certainly that's the thesis for Hannibal, is that when Hannibal is opening his mouth, it's because someone rude has come in to the room. I have one question and then one plot hole. My question is, what the hell is a popper? And if I took one, would I then have somebody hand me a knife and I start slicing my cheeks just fine? It's a party drug. It's amyl nitrate. It's a very quick high. It's like nitrous, kind of. And I want to say, just because we're talking about this whole face-cutting-off scene, going back to the way Ridley Scott filmed this, this is our first vision of Lecter in the film, right? Yeah, they tease us. Yes, and I gotta say, we hear a lot of his voice, but it's all very hazy, and it's it's film like you were under the drugs, you don't really see his face, and I'm gonna come back to this later, but Hannibal doesn't work for me as just a voice. Like, he loses that creepiness when we get this first introduction to him, and it's just these weird, wavy images of him, you don't really see that stare that he has, or his eyes wide open, you just hear his voice. I'm not creeped out by him as much. Just a minor correction, just for a technicality, the first time we see Hannibal, it's actually he's arranged in a flock of pigeons in the opening credits. Oh, don't, I don't want to talk about that. Just, no. That <laughs> but me I off. know, that's so horrible and cheesy. I just want to repress that. And let's go on and talk about the movie as it was. I've already repressed it. I forgot about it. Yes. I forgot that too. It's horrible. I know. But this is all part of the tease. They don't want us to forget about him. They don't want to have the first half hour be Anthony Hopkins list. But it is. It's all in shadow and obscured and you're straining to find him in a flock of birds or in pixels of a security camera. Back to the scene. He cuts off his face. I'm still not buying that nitrous oxide would make somebody cut off their face so gleefully. Oh, no, I I would not make you do that. You are correct. But I'll chalk it up to Lecter. I mean, he made the guy choke on his own tongue, so we'll chalk it up to that. But then this is the survivor. So obviously he needed some medical attention. He didn't just go, by the way, find Hannibal Lecter. He fed me to the dog. Why did Hannibal then get to go out and kill more and more until he was finally brought down? Verger was his fourth victim, and the flutist was his ninth victim. That was the one that, more or less, he got caught with. So, yeah. Did he work the other ones real fast? Seeing this early flashback, hating the way that it's filmed with the strobe effect, not really understanding what would lead someone to cut off their own face by mere suggestion and drugs... I really kept waiting for the movie to get back to this. I was 
certain that as soon as that Lecter and Verger met again, and the the shoe was on the other foot, as it were, and it was Lecter who was going to be fed to animals, that we would get the full side of the story. No, and it bothered me that it doesn't go into more detail on this. It seems to be the central crux of it. If you're going to have a revenge story, we need to know what is being avenged. You're not wrong, and that is the secret I thought Verger had that actually is not in this movie, and it's not in the book. It is just not there. But come on, you don't love Verger's house. You don't love this, like, southern gentleman way that he's living, and when she's walking around, and he turns on the light and makes Clarice stare into his face to test her. You don't think all of these scenes are really effective? I like them, but it's not the Silence of the Lambs universe I'm in anymore. And I can't argue that. I've, I guess what I'm saying is I've come to accept that I'm not going to get a classic movie right now. I'm just hoping to get a good pulp story. And this is the pulp that I'm really digging. I just don't think it's interesting because nothing interesting is being done with them. There's no plot to make me care. First, we're shooting a drug dealer with AIDS needles, and then we're seeing Ray Liotta hit on Julianne Moore, and now we're here. It's all happening so fast that I'm not able to enjoy anything because it's also transitory. I'm going to say this, Arnie, as this movie goes and as we get more and more into the plot here, I feel like I'm watching a TV series, like maybe an eight-part series that has been edited down to a couple of hours, and I'm missing episodes in between because it's the FBI drug raid gone bad, and now this weird disfigured guy episode, and then we'll go to the Italy episode. Like, it's all over the place. Yes, it is exactly that. It is rushing through all of these storylines and details, and I do feel like the movie for me, really begins when we finally get to Hannibal and see what he's been up to. It's a little frustrating to me that we only catch up with the last year of his 10 years of exile. I still have no idea what he's been doing for nine years. (laughs) But hey, at least I finally get a sense of who this man has become since he flew the coop 10 years ago. He's clearly been eating. I mean, it happens to anyone that goes to (laughs) Europe, right? It's been 10 years. You got it. 10 years of eating that rich cream food and all that? Oh, yeah. It's, It's had an effect on Hannibal. And not a good one. He needs to go on some jogs with Clarice. Yeah. I notice overall that Hopkins' performance here didn't feel as fun as it did back in 91. I think that having an Academy Award and having a lot of work between then and now, he now feels like he has a rep to maintain. He's just not chewing up the scenery as much as he did. I mean, in the first movie, he draws out his letters so much. You know, that was nice. He's in no hurry. He wants that camera on him because he's a hungry actor. Well, now we see he's been eating, and he's just fine to kind of... It felt like it was a phoned-in performance. Well, here's the kind of funny thing, and I've thought about this quite a lot, actually. Reading the book, seeing the movie now twice. What is his mental state now that he's free? Because that's the big difference, obviously. Before, he was... Coiled. Everything that he was thinking and calculating and doing was about getting out, was about escape. And now he's comfortably in a new identity with no one knowing who he is. I think he's unhappy. I think he's truly depressed. I think that it's a cautionary tale about getting what you want. He has everything. He has culture. He can eat the strangest of foods and no one notices because they eat strange foods. And he can live exactly as he's imagined when he was locked away from everything. And it's not satisfying. And I said earlier, I'm going to blame a lot of this on Scott. I feel like so much of this 
is just misshot. It's not about his face. And that's what works so well in silence is that you just, you're so focused on his face in that film that it, it draws you in here. You're not drawn in by his presence. Well, let me ask you this. Would uh, you have been okay with a recast? Would you have been okay with Tim Roth? No, no. I, I just want Anthony Hopkins back good, but nobody else could do it. I'd rather have him phoning it in than not have him at all, you know? it's. I just don't think that this is phoning in. I think you have to accept the fact that getting what you want has made him depressed, and it's made Clarice depressed, and as such, depressed people just aren't as fun to watch as ambitious people. I didn't get this from him, though. I didn't get depression from him, especially later on in the film when his performance doesn't improve, and he's killing mercilessly. Yes, that, I, that is the difference, is that later in the film, he comes up with a game. I'll get Clarice back in my life. I'll stop thinking about her. I'll stop pining for her. I'll make her chase me. You know, it's a love story, oddly enough, is really what this is about. He's a romantic at heart. Who knew? But life is not worth living without his girl. I just wish that they wouldn't have made it so explicit when they have the two characters saying, does he want to eat her or fuck her? And they're like, probably both, but don't ask me which order. The movie didn't need to tell me that. We knew that, didn't we? Yeah. Ah, but I like that line. I laughed. I actually kind of like the line, but you're right. A lot of this first half, when we're talking about Clarice and Lecter, is rehashing the old. It's her playing the old tapes and having her new southern accent inserted where Jody said the lines and reliving everything that was the old movie to not really any new effect. Sure, there's Barney again, and it's nice to catch up and see the actor Frank Faison and all that, but at the end of the day, nothing is really learned from these things. They're not pushing the plot forward, and it's just unfortunate because we're here to see something happen. We're here for the spark, and the spark really comes when Lecter is in danger, when he gets chased. That comes really from Potsy. Well, you talk about those tapes. They didn't just replace... Foster's lines with Moore's lines. I could tell Hopkins re-recorded his lines. I was wondering that. Oh, no, yeah. No, I know the movie well enough to know exactly when they're using the real stuff and when he's doing different inflections, different takes on it. Yep, and not as good, I dare say. And again, I have to wonder, is that because we're not seeing his face or is it just his line delivery later on in this film where he's giving chase to Clarice? We just hear him talking over a cell phone most of the time. And again, he doesn't hold that terror. So I don't know if it's the action or if they're just portraying him a different way that he's not in that cell where we're forced to look at him here. He's so, so obscure in this film and it's got his fucking name in the title. But here's the thing. I think we're all saying Hannibal Lecter's not scary anymore. We can have lots of different opinions about him, but he does not terrify us to see him walking around in trench coats going to the opera. That's not scary. No, I really found my attention waning. I mean, we're, we get about an hour into this film, and what do we have? Clarice is listening to tapes, Ray Liotta's looking at drawings of her boobs, and Hannibal Lecter is sipping wine at the opera, and I'm really like, please, something fucking happen. This film is now about trying to get Lecter's thumbprint. Like, that's the big action scene in this film, like, halfway through. I'm like, I don't know what this film is anymore. Well, I'm going to disagree with you guys. I really like Potsy. I really like all of this Florence stuff. I like the idea that the story could have started with this new detective being in the role of Clary Starling and Will Graham. 
Stuart, that's a great idea. We don't get it here. We get half of it. I definitely think they've set up the fact that there's a mention of El Monstro. I don't know if you guys know anything about El Monstro, but in Florence, he's a real serial killer that's been around for decades and killed all these lovers. And they make the claim that Potsy was the guy that caught him before it was discovered that Potsy kind of screwed up and he didn't catch him. But for a while, he was famous and then he was reviled. And I'm just going to make the claim right now. I could have been totally happy with the movie being Hannibal Lecter, El Monstro, and Potsy in Florence. That's your movie. That is the next chapter in this story. We don't need America at all. This is the movie. And Potsy has a beautiful wife that he can't keep in finery things. He's running out of money, so he's going to Verger. And the wife is attracting Lecter. I think all of this is great tension that they totally drop. (laughs) They completely drop. And I get upset. Every time they get me excited, they just drop it. And that's what I'm experiencing is that they tease me. I get excited. I get aroused. I'm like, oh, I'm into this movie now. I can accept it on its own terms. And then they go, eh, we got to move on to this next storyline. And it's dropped. But I I disagree with you guys. I'm not bored with Potsy. I think he's a really interesting character. I think that this should have been the movie. It's probably also worth pointing out, too, El Monstro does make a cameo in a deleted scene. He's actually watching Lecter do Potsy and the gutting from the shadows. They actually have, for some reason, of course, they cut it because nobody knew that that's supposed to be the serial killer they barely mentioned. But (laughs) he is in some deleted scenes. Yeah, I had no idea there was a serial killer in Europe in any of this. (laughs) You know what? I knew there was a killer. I thought it was Hannibal. I thought that Potsy was investigating Hannibal for killing people. That's what I assumed. I know. It's too hard. They don't have enough time to establish that. That's, of course, what you would naturally assume. If you hear about missing people and lovers being killed and lectors, they are in an alternate identity. Well, of course, it's him, right? You'd have to establish that there's someone else. You would have to create that triangle again. And God damn it. I just feel like this story would be great. It's the movie I wanted to see done in a very sloppy, badly acted, badly performed, everything. I just, uh, F for execution, but an A for uh, concept. I really like it. Wow. We have very different grading scales then. <laughs> well, I'll say this. They do drop a lot in this film. An hour and 15 minutes in, you get the line, I'm giving very serious thought to eating your wife. And I'm like, oh, now this movie's finally getting good. We're getting the creepy Hannibal. Right. Wouldn't you want to see him do that? And we never see the wife again. Like, it's totally fucking dropped. Oh, I'm so angry about that. I'm like, at the very least, we needed to know that he ate her. Right? We needed some aside or some article of clothing he kept or something because him eating her lets us know how he feels about attacking and eating women still, right? Like that's going to tell us whether he's going to eat Clarice or not, which is the driving force here. It's the perfect way to compare and contrast. They don't even go there. And I just, I'm dumbfounded that they dropped this so unceremoniously it's their best hook in the first hour and yeah we don't know whether he ate the wife or not but they intentionally make potsy this kind of slimy guy right i mean he gets a pickpocket to get the thumbprint Mm -hmm. and then lector does this deft little cuts his granal artery and potsy lets him bleed out to keep his secret i mean he's a bad guy too this is a film full of ugly people (laughs) yeah 
but that's going back to Manhunter or Red Dragon with Will Graham. I mean, that was his whole deal. And Stuart, you mentioned in the book that the death of Freddy, you get the sense that it was more orchestrated by Will yeah. in there, in that you had that idea of this cop that's becoming the serial killer. And I like that in Manhunter. So I could have gone with it in this film. I'm with you, Jacob. I agree. He's an imperfect cop. He is not trying to get Lecter because it is his job and his duty. He's trying to get him so he can get three million bucks and keep his wife in finery. That's why he's trying to do it. I like that. That makes me like him more. It humanizes him in a way. Well, perhaps the reason I'm not getting into this is because, as we said, Hannibal only eats the rude. And so when we see Potsy killing, or at least aiding in the death of the pickpocket and things, all I'm seeing here is a neon sign saying, he's a bad guy, it's okay if Hannibal kills him, don't be mad at Hannibal. This is a very strangely black and white moral film where Hannibal eating people is a good thing to do. It's a heroic thing to do. The audience is now to cheer him and not think he's a bad person for doing it because he only eats the bad people. Yeah, and this is what happens inevitably in any horror series is that at some point we stop identifying with victims and the heroes trying to bring the bad guys to justice and we just are there to enjoy the bad person from doing what they do best in a really witty, gory way. And you're right, that seems to be the problem is that they knew that we love Hannibal, we want him to do bad things, so how do you write a character with that conceit? You make everyone else around him awful. I think that's a mistake, but that seems to be what they're doing. I can't recall a film full of so repugnant characters since I saw Happiness. Oh, jeez. Again, though, I, I don't feel like Potsy's all bad. I, I kind of like him, and maybe it's just my affection for Giancarlo, but I just think he's kind of a fun... He's got a mystique that no one else on screen really does. Everyone else feels black and white to me, and he feels really gray. I feel like he really has a strange quality to him. It, to me, he felt like plot device B. He didn't even really need a name. He was there to move things forward and to get Verger that connection to Hannibal and to get the fingerprint to prove where Hannibal is so that we can continue to move the main trinity forward to come together at the end. They don't have enough time to indulge in all of the ideas that they have here. This is a storyline they should not have dropped, and they did. I also don't like the way that they drop it, because when Hannibal kicks him out the window, there's a quick cut, and then he flips him, and then he falls, and the bowels fall out. I don't care... What, how sharp your knife is, your bowels are not falling out from one quick slip from an old man. It's again to what you said, Stuart, the last movie had such a reality to it that here it's like that one scene of him stringing up the body is now the reality basis for this entire film. Yeah, no, they're not even trying to give us gore that is something that would happen. It is over the top. It feels to me like a writer who has said, you guys want cannibals, you guys want violence, you want skinning women, I'm going to do that a hundred times over. Like, it really became a project about indulgences and going with the sickest, most perverted things you could come up with. Maybe because this movie is now 10 years old and just the way movies go, they just got to keep pushing the envelope more and more and more. Like, I remember hearing about this film when it came out and that it just had sickening gore and it was just so intense. And that's going way back to the beginning of this retrospective talking about, is this a horror series? This is the one film that I said, well, maybe this is where it gets its horror reputation. 
reputation because I've heard how over the top this one is. And yeah, we have, you know, a little piece of flesh being fed to a dog and we have these bowels, but it's so cartoonish. Like I didn't ever wince at this. I, I saw more horrific things during the Saw retrospective than I saw it in any moments of this film. But your case is valid. What you're saying is absolutely on point here. It has been 10 years since Silence of the Lambs. There have been so many copycats like copycat and seven <laughs> and kiss the girls that I feel like, yeah, how they're not trying to connect with what's going on with that movie back in 1991. They're trying to keep up with seven. They're trying to keep up with the seven deadly sins and all the graphic murders and all that. They're really playing to a very contemporary horror aesthetic and not trying to recapture the spirit of the last movie. To its detriment, I would say. But that seems to be the thrust of it. They want to be the most gory show in town. But before they get us back to America, they do find a very clever way to get the two principals talking, right as he's just about to do Potsy. Clarice should just happen to call Potsy on his cell phone, and we get the phone call. It's kind of fun. Even if it wasn't Jodie Foster, it was nice to hear Lecter talk to Clarice again. It's nice. I mean, it's good to get these two together. She's been hunting him in the basement, which is, you know, admittedly more realistic as far as crime procedurals go, but it's not exactly something you want to watch in a movie. Mm -mm. Her watching videotape footage of perfume counters? Yawn. Or listening to the old tapes, which pay out how? Besides learning how about what kind of pigeon she is, which yeah. I guess connects to the pigeon motif of Hannibal at the beginning of this film. I can't begin to understand what a deep roller is, but yeah. I wanted to go pigeon hunting at the end of this film. I was so sick of hearing about the deep rolling pigeon. Like, what was the payoff of it? I understood the words. I don't understand what the payoff is. Exactly. Like, where did she do a deep roll and pull up? Like, I, I'm waiting for that moment at the very end. And no, it doesn't happen. Uh -uh. But to save Clarice's career, her Romeo comes flying back to the States. I don't know that that's what he's there to do, actually. He's there to see her again. I definitely feel like the whole game was her to find him. And now that she has, she's passed that test. He's going to draw a little closer. See, that's not how I took it. I took it as the way Verger set it up is he will come back for her. Not to save her, though. He says it's like a fox that sees the wounded rabbit. Yeah. That's important to distinguish. He doesn't believe that Lecter has the capacity to love, that it's not Beauty and the Beast. He makes that very explicit. He's ultimately going to degrade her, but he can't resist her. What's attractive to him is a woman in distress. So Verger sets it up that she will be distressed. She sits Ray Liotta on her. Well, that would be distressing for anybody. <laughs> But what's upsetting to me is the fact that they do it so easily. I mean, I feel, again, if you're going to frame Clarice and going to be making it about her humiliation, having Verger, a almost paraplegic, forge a Lecter love letter right in his voice, in his handwriting, and have Ray Liotta, what, just drop it on her desk and go, hey, look what I just found. They don't have Lecter's prints on it. They don't have the ambergris sent on it. They don't have anything to link it with the letter that he actually did send, but that's enough to get her suspended. I'm angry at this point. At this point, up until this point, I've actually kind of enjoyed the movie for whatever it is, despite huge problems that I'm having. 
You're so forgiving, Stuart. Yeah, I think I am forgiving, because I do. I really like the last movies. I really like this character. And the good stuff that's here is enjoyable enough that I can roll with it. I am rolling with it. You're a deep roller, a deep, deep roller. <laughs> I'm a deep or a shallow roller or some kind of roller. But I'm going with it until we get to America. And then I really don't – I don't understand what's happening. There's a good five minutes here where I literally don't know what's happening. She's running in the woods and he's following her and – I had no idea what was going on either. Like, I understand they're on the phone talking to each other and she was drunk and he walked in and set this whole little chase up. I don't understand why any of this is happening, though. Like, I understand what I'm seeing, but I don't know the why is behind anything in this film. I think the biggest problem is we don't really know what Clarice wants. What does she want? Does she want to kill Lecter? Does she want to capture Lecter? Would she like to protect him from Verger? I don't know what Clarice wants. I know what Lecter wants. He wants to get close enough to Clarice without that glass to see what he's going to do. I don't think he knows what he's going to do, but he wants to test himself. And he just wants to smell her again. You know, he's, he's ruled by his senses, and she excites him. He wants to see what being around her will do for him. I don't know what Clarice wants, and that's a real big problem here. If you're going to bring Clarice back, you got to explain what she's doing here. They don't. And it should be pointed out, the book has an entirely different idea about what Clarice is capable of that they just don't go for in the book, and probably it's the right choice. The only thing I think we learn about Clarice in the second half is her mom used to clean toilets at the Motel 6. That was the only thing I learned about Clarice. Everything else, she stopped being interesting the second she confessed about her childhood trauma with the lambs. That was the last time she said anything that made you empathize with her. True, but they still could have made her special. You know, they could have made her tough. At the end of Silence of the Lambs, she was the only one who could figure out Buffalo Bill. I mean, she had a little help, but she was still the only one in the entire FBI profiling division that could find him and tough enough to single-handedly face him and shoot him down. So if you couldn't make her interesting, you could at least make her special. But here, you've defrocked her. And so she has nothing going for her. She is the least interesting character. And again, this is why I can't compare Julian Moore's performance at all to Jodie Foster's because Jodie Foster was given interesting things to do. Julianne Moore is sitting around listening to tapes and, and stumbling around drugged for like the last 15 minutes of this film. Yeah. yeah. The one scene I can give Julianne Moore comes up next in the film is the cell phone cat and mouse. I like that scene. It's got a little bit of that artistic douchebaggery going for when you see like half of Anthony Hopkins face and half of reflection and things. And it's not like that really meant anything. It's not like there's two sides going on here or anything, but I like this scene. I hate this scene. I hate him touching her hair on the carousel. I hate him running out of a photo booth. The painful unreality of it all is setting in of how it's impossible for me to believe that he could have gotten onto a plane to get here, to find her, to have the money to somehow purchase a car, to buy all this finery. I think he steals Leota's identity and uses his bills to pay for some of the cooking stuff that he's buying, but I'm not entirely sure. All I know is... Is that why he shows him breaking into the I was so confused. I don't know, but I think it might have something to do with that. All that I can hold on to at this point is at least I still have my Verger, who I love, and I want to see his vengeance against Lecter. It's the only relationship now I care about, and I really want to see, once they finally capture Lecter, I really want to see this face-off. I really... Face-off! <laughs> Uh, unintentional. I still <laughs> would recommend this movie if they can deliver a climax that's worthy of this relationship. I am still on the fence with my recommendations. 
guess what? They can't, because when this showdown came, I too was expecting it, you know? They've been leading up to it for God only knows how long. I'm proud of myself for not checking the timer in this movie. So I don't know wow. how long I've been... I, I did that multiple times. <laughs> it's an hour and 40 minutes. I was checking it. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I, I've been watching it for I didn't know how long, and when the showdown comes, I expect this to be big. I expect this to take a while. Nah, it's over pretty damn quick. They wheel out Lecter and they put his mask back on him, which they set up earlier that Verger had bought off Barney. And, you know, it's like trying to get the band back together again, but they're way too old. <laughs> it felt to me like they were just, like, they had to do it. Like, this was the scene everybody knew was Lecter tied up with the mask. And so we have to find a way to get him tied up in that mask again. It's the beat we have to hit to make a sequel. And it just felt false to me here. I like it when Verger wears the mask. I actually think that I enjoy it more when Verger is kind of, like, I, I agree. Yeah. and, like, laughing. And, like, is he here yet? You know, like, Gary Ullman's great in this. I would begin to know how to play this, and I shudder at the fact that they originally offered this to Christopher Reeve after his horse accident, and this is the part that you can play now. <laughs> I mean, damn, Rear Window, the TV movie was bad, but this is much more offensive. He was right to pass on this, and I'm so glad I don't have to deal with Christopher Reeve as Verger. This feels like a comic book to me with man-eating pigs and he's, you know, Hannibal strung up like Christ. Come on, you don't like this a little? You don't like the idea that pigs trained to human squeals would actually attack people and rip their flesh off? If there was some reason for that, why does Verger want to kill him this way versus just shooting him or any other way? Like Because the dogs ate his face. Now, why did he carve his face out? I'm still waiting to find that out, but I can understand. Tit for tat. You had animals eat my face, I'm going to have them eat your flesh. I can go with this. I would go with dogs more than pigs. Why yes. pigs? Well, he, here's something from the book they really did need to include. Verger's wealth all came from the meatpacking industry, and he had a family history, a wealth of knowledge about breeding animals. It's kind of what he was known for, and he had bred all of these different kinds of things. It made sense that he would be able to create a strain of voracious flesh-eating pig, that he could actually come up with this, and that it took him years to do this. I like it. I think it's cool. It's unexpected and it's lurid, but so is this story, and I think it's working for this new environment. It's one of the few wild tangents that I actually can still hold on to the safety bar and ride along with it. Flesh-eating pigs? We've never seen that before. There's a reason, because it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Why not flesh-eating pigeons? That would have at least tied into the film. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not going to change my note. I think the pigs are an inspired stroke of crazy, and I just enjoy it so much. I think the pigs stink. But I'm holding on by a thread. I'm waiting for the showdown. I love it when, you know, Verger's being wheeled out in his chair and Lecter's wheeled out in his and all of it. And then suddenly, bam, 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 it's over. It's a couple gunshots. And again, like Potsy, is just thrown out the window. All right. But those gunshots come from Clarice, who the last time she shot somebody caused her career to be cast aside. I would have thought she would have tried to find a non-fatal way because they make this big deal about how she's the most lethal person in the FBI. She's constantly killing people and then she comes in and kills people without thought. I would have thought that they try a different tack 
here, and they don't. Well, what they're getting at is the fact that she had her gun taken away. So if she's killing them, she's doing it as a citizen. She has no right to be doing this. She's essentially an outlaw. And she didn't even have a, a gun. An excise scene, one of the deleted scenes, actually had one of the cops from the original shootout. She kept his gun. She had it in the back of the closet. That was the only weapon she had left. But it's not really a stretch to think Clarice would have a bunch of guns in her house. I, it, that was needless, and they were right to cut it and speed this movie up as much as they could. I'm just surprised, Arnie, that you're expecting something from the beginning of this film to pay off at this point. I mean, because nothing else has... I actually kind of like the scene between Verger and Clarice at the beginning of the film where he says, you know, I noticed he didn't wince at my face, but when I mentioned religion is when I got a reaction out of you. I'm like, okay, so, you know, and then we get all this religious imagery throughout the film, but there's no theme there. It never pays off. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we see Hannibal come in on the cross. Does that scare Clarice? No, she rushes in and say, like, this film is just a mess. I agree. They're heading towards a redemption theme. Can her career be saved? Can Verger get his vengeance? Is Hannibal Lecter going to be Christ? All these things, it's all brimming and bubbling, and all of a sudden, whamp! dropped. And the worst offense of all, Cordell, the live-in physician who we've barely come to know, is the one that puts down Verger. It's not Hannibal. It's not Clarice. It's not even Ray Liotta. It's Cordell. But at Hannibal's behest, but by the same token, yeah, I'm taking my notes during this thing and I completely ignore this doctor character. And then at the very end, I'm like, well, shit, now what do I remember about him? I've got to go back and write my notes about him because he's the one who kills Verger. Ridley Scott says in his commentary, the reason you're supposed to know why he would follow through with it is because Verger says, go get me my lunch at one moment in the thing. And that that rude treatment, despite the fact that the guy's probably rolling in money for doing his job and taking care (laughs) of this man, that that is supposed to be enough for you to understand why he would dump him into a sty of pigs and blame it on Lecter. But this is the moment where I break. This is the moment where I say, nope, I cannot recommend this movie anymore. They don't care about anything that I do. Wow, you held on for a long time. Yeah, a lot longer than I did. I really cared about parts of this movie. I really feel like some of it is obsessively fascinating and really well thought out. And then some of it is, you're right, a James Bond movie that's over the top and grandiose and lurid and ridiculous. And sometimes that coalesces in an interesting way. Sometimes it doesn't. But at this point, I no longer care because the two characters I did care about, not Hannibal, not Clarice, but Verger and Potsy can be thrown away so carelessly, so sloppily, like the kind of writing you wouldn't think that a published author would be capable of. And it took him 14 years to get to this. I'm just so upset that the final showdown between these two monsters is over so quick. It's like cannibalist interruptus. It is. And, and more to the point, okay, you got flesh-eating hogs running around tearing things up. You got gunmen all around from Italy, marksmen shooting people. You got Clarice down and bleeding and is she going to live? And then you got this verger psychopath and whatever. And like, you've got all these elements of drama and literally he just walks out and be like, bye. And that's the end of that storyline. There's no more. But wait, there's more. When you think the film's over it's not well because they have framed this as the reunion of clarice and lecter and they have always implied that there is a attraction be it romantic or intellectual between them we need to see them date he's not wrong we do need to end this with their first date and so we do how do you feel about the idea about these two sitting down to eat the brains of the man that wronged her See, I feel it's a cheat because she's drugged. 
Like, she's not all there, and I I don't know if that's how Hannibal would do it. I think he would want her all there. He's very much about this intellectual battle of the minds, and to weaken her like that. I, I like the fact that she keeps trying to pick up blunt objects and hit him over the head, and he keeps catching her doing that. Like, she still has some sense to her, but I, I feel it's a cheat that she's not all there. But that's all she does. She just keeps trying the same tact. Oh, here's a large object I can hit him with. <laughs> It was a little wily e. coyote. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit, really. And it goes <laughs> on just about as long as one, too. But I agree with you, Jacob. I don't like this because she hasn't been seduced into doing it of her own volition. She's drugged and doesn't want to be there. It just becomes so over the top. And you get Ray Liotta awake, eating his own brain. It just, at this point, if we weren't in Fantasyland before, we're certainly in one now. And Patients can be awake during brain surgery. They actually brought in a brain surgeon to advise this scene. And he spent some time trying to be medically accurate. It's probably about as medically accurate as the human centipede. But they <laughs> did try to honor this moment, give it as much realism as they possibly could. I wouldn't begin to say that this could actually happen, but they do make the case in the commentary that some of these things that you see, the portion of the brain that's eaten, his ability to be cognizant and talking while being operated on, these things could happen. Oh, I completely understand that. My biggest fear in life is that happening to me, having to be awake while somebody goes into my brain and starts touching things and you have to respond and tell you have to be awake for it well then i guess that's what i'm asking you did this scene just get under your skin for that reason alone did it just get you for it being so sick and perverted no, no. It, i was laughing it, maybe because by today's standards this seems very tame maybe in 2001 this was shocking i thought it was funny looking and i ray liotta i liked his performance but i thought it was funny i saw this in 2001 and here's the problem is it's obvious that what we're actually seeing is Ray Liotta sitting there with a blue stocking cap on and somebody putting a brain where his head should be. You know, it's it didn't look real enough for me. If they'd gone with some kind of prosthetic or something, if it had looked more realistic, it might have really gone under my head. You know what? I got a little surprise for you because I agree. A lot of the times it looks like they digitally wiped the top portion of Ray Liotta's head. There's also a puppet. And they do show you how sometimes when he's carving into it, it is a Rayleigh over the puppet. And I got to say, the human path of that puppet is pretty convincing. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes. I didn't realize that. But when you're looking at it face on and Ray Liotta's giving his little grin. Yeah, when he's talking. Yeah. When he's facial reacting, it's probably the puppet. But when he's actually talking, it's definitely a digital wipe and adjustment. Yeah, so that caused some problems for me that made me not weirded out by this the way it, I could have been had it been done differently. Krindler hasn't been bad enough for me to want him to be lobotomized in front of me. And I certainly don't buy into the idea that this Clarice, Jody's Clarice, or anyone that I've read in the book would ever find this an enticing meal, that she would actually sit down to devour this. Jodie Foster was right. This is a betrayal of Clarice, this scene. And it just doesn't play right. Even with the idea of her being drugged and only half aware and trying to get wine and get away from there and hurt Lecter, I just don't buy it. I, How is it a betrayal of the character? She's drugged. She is trying to get out of there. Didn't you just say that taking drugs is not going to make you cut off your face? Well, taking a drug is not going to make her sit down and have a civilized dinner with her boss's brain on her plate. I don't think she ever was really sitting down to have dinner. I mean, she no. was trying to get to Lecter the whole time. I'm going to say the biggest betrayal, though, is when they get to the kitchen, and how does Lecter beat her? By 
trapping her long female hair, sign of femininity, into the refrigerator. You know, the kitchen appliance. Like, you just spent a whole film about coming over the sexist stereotypes in the sexist world of the FBI to only be beat by your own femininity. I actually kind of like it for exactly that reason, that in the end of the day, Lecter is a misogynist. Let us not forget, at the end of the day, he objectifies women too. And that that's the real him. We can be seduced by him, but let us not forget that in the end, he has a very specialized role for what women can play in his life. And I think this is a good moment. I actually would argue, okay, this is the point where he's either going to make a meal of her or she's going to run away with him. This is the big choice. And I'll just go ahead and say this now. There were three different versions of this ending, two that were shot and one that they decided not to film. Well, the one they chose, I don't buy. I don't buy that he would mutilate himself for anyone. I agree. He's he's too self-serving. He would have cut off her hand, and that would have been his meal on the plane. <laughs> I like it. I could go with that, actually. I kind of agree. But you know what? It's the romantic spirit of it. Well, literally, there's a scene after he escapes. It just cuts to fireworks for no reason. We know what fireworks are a symbol of in a movie. Like, it's literally the lovemaking scene. Yeah, no, it is. He is just too much of a sap to hurt her at the end of the day. And I don't know. That definitely hurts my impression of Lecter. It doesn't match up with how I've thought of him. And I don't think I saw how seduced he had gotten. We had seen him be seduced before. She sold him an anthrax island vacation that she couldn't make good on in Silence of the Lambs. That seduction, I believe. Here, I do not know why, yes, when his own life is in jeopardy, he would mutilate himself and not her, particularly when she put him in this position. But this was the ending that they came up at the very end. They originally did film a version of this where she is just like, kind of says, I'm not going with you. And he goes, okay. And she doesn't cuff him and he walks away. That's worse. <laughs> this one has more suspense. And then they had a version where they both made it out to the boat. There was no refrigerator. You might have liked this better, Jacob. But they made it out to the boat, handcuffed, and he jumps in the water to drown. She falls in as well. If she is to save herself, she must produce the key and unlock the handcuffs to let him go. And she has to make the choice between catching him and dying or letting him go free and saving her own life, and which she does. And they, I think at the end, it just became too expensive. They were already horribly over budget just by what people got paid and all the money in pre-production. And Dino De Laurentiis doesn't exactly give you a ton of money to begin with. I think that they just decided it was not worth the experiment to film all that underwater rig. Well, the other problem I have, and I had the same problem with the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is when you've got a successful franchise, dismembering your villain doesn't exactly help with the sequel. It takes away a lot of his menace that next time he's going to be the one-handed cannibal. No, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, how does he get away? How bad are these law enforcement people that an old man with one hand bleeding on a bicycle could escape all of these people and get on a plane with brains with we bringing his own food including human remains which i don't i didn't see him pack it did he while he was like trying to stop the bleeding out of his hand did he pack the lunch i don't know <laughs> how this happened but of course they've established that they need to end on a joke silence of the lambs made clear that the audience whenever they see the horror of all of this they still want to end laughing and they still want Lecter to amuse them. So they come up with this scene that's actually in the middle 
of the book when he's flying to America. I just think that this is a horrible ending. Oh, come on. Now now it's gone too far for you. I, I love that he's feeding brains to a kid. I do, like, too. Finally, it's... there's some real perversity in this film. You guys like this? Oh, Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. God. This feels like a Hannibal thing to do, to, to corrupt the youth. I loved it because I didn't think the filmmaker would go there. You know, it seems like Lecter's like, oh, you wouldn't like this. And I'm like, oh, God, play it safe. And then it ends with him feeding the brains to the kid. I'm like, yes, yes. Okay. Like, that's what I want in a Hannibal sequel. Like, I, again, I, I'm expecting it to be over the top, but with him. Like, this film is over the top, but he's barely in this film to, to have it named after him. Like, this is what I wanted to see. If you're going to go with this kind of perversity and this strangeness with man-eating pigs and burn victims that are pedophiles and own senators, like, this is the kind of stuff I want to see then. Yeah, this scene, amputated from the rest of the film, I recommend, but the rest of this movie's shit. <laughs> Watch wow. the last five seconds. Well, <laughs> I think we can agree on this much. It has nothing to do with what we've seen previously. It has an entirely different spirit to it than the rest of the movie. I hated it, but uh, <laughs> at least it's over, right? And uh, we finish up credits with a Tata H, not knowing really this may be the last time we see his future. Now, we do have two more Lecter movies in the series, but it's not going to be what happens to him from this point on forward. Do you guys have any thoughts on what might become of Lecter, where he's going or what he could be, or whether we'll ever see a future movie with him one-armed or with Clarice dancing in South America? Like, what do you, what do you think the future could be? I think that for whatever reason, Anthony Hopkins got done after Red Dragon. And I don't think that Lecter will ever come back. I think we're done with him. I really do, because I think it would be hard-pressed to reboot the franchise and either make Red Dragon a third time or... You do know that we are going to watch this very reboot, and it's the fifth movie, Animal Rising. Is that what they... Oh, they tried the reboot. Okay, I didn't realize the prequel was the reboot. When I said reboot, I meant start over, like redo Silence of the Lambs. I gotta say, if they're depending on Harris for the material, if much of Hannibal is based on the book, I don't want any more. At least not based on Harris's stuff. If you could bring some other writers in and they got something good they could tell, maybe I'm for it then. But not if it's based on Harris's stuff. Seeing that, like, I thought so much of this film, it, it just came off as fan fiction. And you didn't read the book. That's what's amazing. I read the book. That's my review of the book. And you're exactly right. Without having read it, that's exactly how this comes off. You would be shocked to learn if you had just read the manuscript that it came from the same author as the last two books. You're right. I think for sure Thomas Harris is done with Lecter. I can't imagine him writing another book. I don't even know of people asking him what he's working on. I don't think he is. I mean, it in... 40 years, the man's written five books. So I think the reason that the next movie's Red Dragon is simply the man either doesn't like to write or he's slow at it or he's neurotic. But Jacob, you said if it's Harris writing it, you don't want to see it. I'm thinking Harris isn't going to live long enough to do another one. Well, you aren't wrong. Stephen King is apparently a friend and a fan, and he says that he is exact opposite work aesthetic as Stephen King. Stephen King's like, oh, it's Tuesday. I must write another novel, 600 pages or more. Thomas Harris, every word is painful for him to write, and it takes him agonizing long times. With each novel, it gets longer and longer between the gaps, with the exception of Hannibal Rising and Hannibal. It takes him longer and longer to finish of work. And I agree. Even if he has another Lecter story to tell, does any of us have enough time to live to see it? Certainly not <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. 
So he wrote Hannibal Rising too. Yep. Well, oh, I'll be re- reviewing well, that in two weeks. So <laughs> books and nachos. But to finish this, Jacob Stewart. I, in case it's not crystal clear, <laughs> do you recommend Hannibal, Jacob? I recommend eating your own brain before seeing Hannibal. This isn't a good movie. Like this movie baffles me, not because the plot's complicated or anything. I just don't understand any of the choices made in this film from Ridley Scott's direction, which is surprised the hell out of me that he directed this because man this is a just it's not a pleasant film to look at from weird acid flashbacks to odd slow motion shootouts it's just a strange film strange plot devices that that go nowhere i I mean this is the kind of thing you watch if if you want to know how to not write a good story watch this film i recommend this film for those purposes because this is freshman 101 awful writing in here where things don't connect and don't go anywhere. I said I liked the ideas from that 10,000 foot view where there's some kernel of good ideas in this film, but once you get into the details, they're no good. I I totally stand by that. If you want to watch this film, be 10,000 feet away so you don't have to see any of the details at all. Not recommended. Strong not recommend. Stuart? Well, you know, I wanted a sequel to Silence of the Lambs at any cost. I would rather live in a world with Hannibal than to live without seeing it and never knowing. And that's just by my own burning desire to know what happens next. I'm glad that I know what Thomas Harris thought what should happen next with Hannibal and Clarice and the creation that he started that I love so much in the last film. It goes without saying that Hannibal is no Silence of the Lambs. It's no Manhunter. It's no Along Came a Spider. I mean, it's really (laughs) not a very good serial killer thriller at all. But there are flashes of brilliance. There are things that I really responded to intensely, as passionately as I love. So I wrestle with this movie. The movie that I kept thinking about watching it is, it's just like watching Godfather 3. I wanted to see these characters come back. I wanted to see their storylines wrap up. But God, is this over melodramatic. And God, are there so many horrible choices and very confusing subplots that are muddying up what should be clean and clear and cleanly delivered. And at the end of the day, I do feel like if you're a Hannibal Lecter fan, you have to see it. But I can't recommend that you'll like it. I can almost certainly say that you will be crushingly disappointed to some varying degree with what you're given. So I'm going to say not recommend, but it's not a strong one. I feel like it's a really interesting failure, and I'd much rather have that than a mediocre, decent serial killer movie with bland nothing. At least it has some of the genius and the kernels of inspiration that I loved about the last movie. So it's enough to watch it, but not enough to like it. When I was watching this this time, I went in with an open mind. I knew I wasn't happy in 2001. I knew I hadn't looked back. But I had to wonder, would this be passable? Could it just be passable? It's going up against Silence of the Lambs, which is so tremendous, that could this ever live up to it? Perhaps my expectations were too high. And going into this, yeah, as both of you have said, there's some great concepts here. I like the concept of Hannibal's victim wanting revenge. I like the concept of trying to feed Paul his own brain. You know, it's a good concept. But the execution here is just piss poor. And I think so much of it goes to the script, but not all of it goes to the script. You've got to throw some blame at Ridley Scott for fucking up the action sequences and... You've got to throw some blame at Anthony Hopkins because I just don't think he was as gleefully fun in this film as he was in the last one. And 
there's plenty of blame to go around here, and I'm going to spread it everywhere with my not recommend. But next week, because Harris can't get off his ass to write a book, let's remake Red Dragon. <laughs> because Dino De Laurentiis still owns the rights, I love the fact that almost no time passes between Hannibal and Red Dragon. It took forever between Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. But within 20 months, another movie, Red Dragon. We'll be doing it next Tuesday. And if you can't wait, and you're one of our very special donors, you're going to get a new show this Friday. We got a big one for me, John Carpenter's Thing hitting this Friday, part of our Thing retrospective. And that is for those of you who have donated $25 or more this fall. And if you donated 10 and you want to hear the Thing shows, you can donate the rest and just drop me an email, show at nowplayingpodcast.com. Let me know to add the two together. We're not trying to bilk more money out of you. It's just if you feel like, again, taking the whole year's worth of shows into account, you want to support our show with $25. Our way of saying thank you is the five Exorcist shows that we've already done and are still available to anyone who donates $10 or more by Halloween of 2011. And if you really like our show and want to give us $25 to help pay for costs and bandwidth and things, then we have three extra bonus shows for you of the thing. And time's running out. I don't mean to put a pressure on you, but we are almost done with this. In a little less than two weeks, this is all over. So I understand times are tight. Maybe you haven't had the money to go more than $10, but you will see these opportunities to hear these shows disappear after Halloween Day a week from Monday. Yep, I can't count the requests I get anymore for the Child's Play and Draws podcast, and we just, we don't have the manpower to keep up with it. We can't have all of those shows available at once. We don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the time to figure out who wants what, so we do these for limited times, and we don't have any plans to ever release them again, so October 31st is your last day to donate, and we thank everyone who has supported us. It means so much. It allows us to keep going with this show, and with all the shows we've done this year, with the Final Destination series, I'm going to be blunt. Sometimes it's hard to go on with the show, and it's listener support that helps us to find the time and find the energy. It's always a factor. I'll just go ahead and put that now. It is always a factor when I look at my calendar and, and things I can accomplish. I always come back to, this is something that people want me to do, so I will keep at it. God knows, I need that help. We got more Marvel coming soon. <laughs> I'm going to get punished before Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, you like it, you know you do. <laughs> Somebody does, and I, I appreciate it every time you can show us that with financial support. It certainly makes it easier to swallow another Marvel pill. So we will be back next week, back with the Tooth Fairy at Red Dragon. So, Jacob Stewart, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. I regret it came to this world, but every game must have its ending. Remarkable boy, I do admire your courage. I think I'll eat your heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series. That was good. Be sure to head to booksandnachos.com each week as Stuart will be reviewing the original Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter novels. Oh, I'd love to get you on my couch. And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another Hannibal Lecter film. So you'll be wanting lots of these little chinwags, I take it. And in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films, 
such as the X-Files films, Final Destination, Inception, Avatar, X-Men, and many more. After all, as your mother tells you, my mother certainly told me, it is important, she always used to say, always to try new things. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these films with other listeners. We could have some fun. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. You're very frank, Larry. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. But Brokwell, yes or no? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Quid pro quo, You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Now Playing's Hannibal Lecter Retrospective series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Tedious. Very tedious. Credits performed by Jen and Brock. I'd give you full credit, of course. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM Pictures, Orion Pictures, or the Weinstein Company, and no infringement is intended. Remember what I said. If you can't be polite to our guests, you have to sit at the kiddies' table. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. That doesn't interest me, Doctor. Frankly, it's, it's the sort of thing that Migs would say. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. You fly back to school now, little starting. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. None of us have clear lines for this one. <laughs> Did someone eat your brain? <laughs> Not much is different other than the fact that Jody... I'm sorry, that Jody... Uh, that Jody Foster involvement could have been anyone. I gotta ask, how did Julianne Moore do? Here's the thing. Julianne oh. Moore's... Rant, rant, rant. What's that? Squeak, squeak, squeak? Is that, is that some backpedaling? I think I hear a little... You need to get some oil. You need to get a whole can of WD-40 because your backpedaling is super loud. Go uh, on. I'm not backpedaling at all. Can I fucking speak? Because what I'm going to say is... Oh, yeah. I don't want to say Ray Liotta is not charming. He's always charming. There's always a wink. And I mean, in many ways, he's Lecter-esque in the way that you like him, even though you don't want to. But he's always a thug. He's always a heavy. He's always a guy you wouldn't want to know in real life. He's actually he actually owned a restaurant in my town. I actually did want to know him in real life. And then it went out of business. <laughs> not surprisingly, it was an Italian joint. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, later, Jody, Jody. I just, again, I just, again for, it again for me, go, go. <laughs> Mine's real quick. I'm to go. 
Patsy, Piazzi, Ponzi. It's Patsy. When we see Jody has been the only altruistic character in all of this. I'll say it again. I think you need to get a jar out, and you know how some families have the curse jar. You're gonna have the Jody jar, and you got to put I... a dollar in every time you say Jody. <laughs> she owns this role. I don't know how you cannot see that this is her part, but uh, whatever. <laughs> And you even read the book. Did you go through and cross out all the Clarices and write Jody? I, I used that <laughs> name interchangeably, yes. And I will do it a hundred more times. I will be cash poor by the end of this call. There goes all the donations. <laughs> <laughs> Why not flesh-eating pigeons? That would have at least tied into the film. <laughs> yeah, if he had an emu farm, that would totally fit the theme better. And those emos are nasty. I don't know if you've ever been around them, but they peck your head. They're awful. I fucking hate those birds. I fucking hate those birds. Should have been an emu farm. But anyway, I'll take the pigs. I love the pigs. Verger and Cl- Cl- Verger and Cl- ah. <laughs>